Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's the holiday week here on IF, and we are wrapping the year up with an all-host roundtable. I'm your host for this one, Dylan Lewis, and I've got Shannon Jones, Nick Seipel, Jason Moser, and Emily Flippin with me here in the studio. Thanks for joining, folks. Hey. Yeah. Um, now, <laughs> listeners that have been following us for a while might be a little surprised to hear Emily's name, uh, usually a market foolery contributor. Um, but joining us in the IF ranks, it's because we have some programming changes coming in 2020, and we wanted to bring Emily into the fold for this year-end wrap-up. Yeah, super excited to have Emily joining. Um, but also for me, uh, I've got some news. So, um, as many of you know, I, uh, Shannon here, uh, I host the Industry Focus Healthcare Show on Wednesdays, which I've been doing. That's my baby. Um, but also, some of you know that I have been um, leading up the discovery programming efforts, and that's all under Motley Fool co founder and CEO Tom Gardner's umbrella. Um, so, with that, I've been kind of doing multiple roles for a very long time. And so now uh, this is a perfect time for me to step back. I'm really excited about the things we're going to be doing in the discovery world, but also super excited for what's ahead with industry focus. Yeah, and we are very thrilled to have Emily with us. Uh, she's wowed a lot of fools on stage at some of our live events uh, and made a lot of listeners quite delighted with her appearances on Market Foolery as well. So we're thrilled to have you with us. I am thrilled to be you know, reached <laughs> out to for this opportunity and, and yeah, get to know industry focus better. And in addition to some of the host changes, uh, Emily is going to be taking over the Tuesday Consumer Goods Show. So you won't get the rotating host that you've gotten for the last, I don't know, 12 months or so. At least. <laughs> <laughs> so you will have one voice coming to you on Tuesday, listeners, but we will be making a change where we'll be going to a wild card Wednesday. And so uh, we will be coming at you with stories that we think are interesting um, and a little bit less bound by the specific industry focus uh, for that one show. Kind of opens us up to do some more fun stuff. Yes, and that does not mean uh, regulars like Todd Campbell and Brian Feroldi will be moving away by any means with this wild card Wednesday format. They'll just be hopping in less frequently, but you'll still get to hear from them. Exactly. All right. So, so, we are doing a roundtable. We are doing kind of a year in review and a decade in review. And to get us in the looking back mindset, I wanted to throw something out there. The Spotify wrapped data has been all over social media over the last couple weeks. Um, I took a look at Spotify data on 2019 to get a sense of the year in pop culture. Any guesses on the most streamed song in 2019? Old Town Road. No, it's not I, Old Town Road. It's not Old so Town Road. I'm gonna go with my my daughters. I mean, they were. They, it was something from Billie Eilish. I, I I just don't know what. I was gonna say Ariana Grande. So you're naming a lot of people that were in the most stream artists, but not the most stream song. Any guess, Emily? I wish I listened to music more often. I don't even have a Spotify member. Something from Taylor Swift, maybe? So I'm going to confess that I did not know this song. It is Senorita by Shawn Mendes and oh. Camila Cabello. I think that's yes. how you yeah, say it. No Camila Cabello. Yes, uh, I can <laughs> see that. I could totally see that. More than one billion streams, uh, the most streamed artist of the year, Post Malone. Uh, so, no. adult listeners, maybe you have no idea who these people are. If you're like me, uh, if you're listening with kids, they might yes. be thrilled right now. And thank you, because now that song will be in my head for the rest of the day, Dylan. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Well, when you say post Malone, then I'm trying to think, okay, well, what was pre Malone? <laughs> <laughs> who in the world that is? And then I remember, oh, yeah. Yep. That's Got a lot of boomers sitting around this table yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Were there any interesting <laughs> insights before we get into the the decade in review? Any interesting insights from your own Spotify Wrapped? I, I always look at that as just one of the greatest marketing campaigns, organic marketing campaigns that a company uh, can possibly put out there. But I'm always tickled to get the user data and get a sense of kind of what I've been listening to and how it changes year to year. Yeah, I can say for me, um, I won't name any specific songs. I'm a little embarrassed that I just literally let it slide, uh, particularly through the night. But I will say, I listen to a lot of soft jazz. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Some better than others that I did not realize. But it was really interesting to actually see that data peeled back because I had no idea. Nick? Yeah, so I think uh, the biggest surprise for me looking back at that Spotify data is just how long I've been on Spotify. I didn't realize that I had first got a profile on that platform back in 2011, and now it's become uh, something when it first showed up. I was like, why hasn't Apple figured this out? And today, they're you know among the you know Apple and Spotify are the two dominant uh, streaming platforms out there. I will say there's a pretty clear theme uh, to my listening habits. It's a lot of kind of jam, uh, that sort of stuff. So widespread panic, a lot of uh, Grateful Dead, that sort of thing. So I wasn't surprised by my results, but I was surprised by really how much time that I've spent on that platform, both over the last year and over you know the last decade. I feel like there's a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram of your listening habits and Jason Moses' listening <laughs> habits. <laughs> Probably so. I would say my my list was very widespread pan- panic heavy. I, I will say though, I was I was a little bit surprised by. I, I normally am kind of set in my ways. I know what I like and whatnot. But the one thing I like about Spotify is all of the different collections and compilations they give you. Their Southern Rock 101 compilation is really, really good. And I found out I listened to it a lot more than I realized over the year. Emily, are you a Spotify user? I, I am happy to say that I'm a foil to this group. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's kind of it's kind of a, a bad foot to start off on for industry focus here, I guess. No, but I'm not a Spotify user, and that's just because I don't really listen to music. I've never been a big music fan. I've always, yeah, podcasts, you know, like we're doing right now. Whenever I find myself in a position where it's like, oh, I could listen to music, there's always something better in my mind I could be doing. I'd be watching TV. That's better than listening to music. I'd be listening to a podcast that's educational. So, yeah, in my mind, I, I doubt my Spotify playlist, if it were to exist, would be anything revolutionary. I think the positive way to spin that is there will be some new perspectives coming to industry <laughs> focus. We're all in, motley in Dylan. 2020, and and that's wonderful. It'll be like, who's Emily? Oh, she's the smart one. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. The listenership the on the no Tuesday taste. show is going to spike. I think as we uh, as we enter the new year. Um, actually, I think Nick, the way you you were talking about Spotify and your own relationship with it is kind of a good entree into one of the topics that we wanted to talk about as we were looking back over the last ten years. And that's how some of the major companies that we interact with have changed over this past decade. Um, Spotify and the whole streaming music space, I think, is probably one of the more obvious ones. And you could say the same for streaming video as well. But, you know, for them to enter this space and beat so many other players to it is pretty incredible. You know, for, for Apple to be trailing them and then only catch up, you know, over the last couple months or so is pretty wild. Yeah, no. So it's 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 been remarkable how things have developed over the last uh, decade or so. You think about it, the start of the 2010s. You know, the way most folks got their music was probably you know an iPod. Remember those <laughs> and uh, iTunes. Uh, remember that uh, that used to actually you know pay for your music. And uh, things have shifted really in a significant way uh, towards streaming. And, and and Spotify really was at the forefront of that. In a lot of ways, it's surprising that you know Apple missed the boat um, on, on kind of the move uh, uh, to streaming. But now we've seen, you know, as Spotify has taken share in streaming, we've seen, you know, in video streaming, uh, you know, at the beginning of the decade, it was really just Netflix. And now, I mean, gosh, just in the past year, we've seen so many folks enter the space. So uh, 
you know, really our relationship with how we consume content has changed in a significant way over time. And, uh, you know, our relationship with these platforms have changed. I know how I think about, uh, maybe you guys have some insight into this, but, uh, you know, when you look at social media platforms, how your relation with those has changed over the decade. I remember, you know, when you first get on, when I first got on Facebook and, you know, 2009, 2010, that was high school. You're interacting with all your friends. Um, today, it's much more you're interacting with large brands, you're interacting with influencers. Our relationship with these platforms have really changed in a significant way over the last you know, 10 years or so. Yeah, you mentioned that people were listening on iPods, and I think uh, there's going to be a generation of people in the next five years or so that look at the word podcast and don't understand why it's called that. <laughs> you know, they will they will be people that did not grow up in the iPod era. They were like, why isn't it a phone cast? Like that's how I'm listening to it. You it know, really is amazing to think about. I mean, that, that is, as revolutionary a product as that is was. I mean, we're saying was like it. It that happened really, really fast for something like that that prolific to be virtually phased out of our lives. Yeah. And, and it was a great product. I sure. think it was like it was, the, the it, it predecessor was, to a phone for a lot of kids, tremendous. right? It was something that was kind of gated that parents could give. Um, and you mentioned some of the shifts in social media. I think we went from a period of being very happily sharing things on social media and very open about who we were publicly <laughs> to maybe feeling a little bit more reserved about some of that stuff uh, as we got into some of the privacy leaks, some of the uh, more unseemly elements of the data targeting and advertising that happens on social media. That's that's one of the big things I think that's changed for me. Um, I look at how I use Facebook, for example, and I still have my account. I did not delete Facebook like so many others did. But I posted once in 2019 on Facebook and it's because I needed a roommate. That was wow. it. That was the only thing I posted. I got tagged and stuff. But, you know, uh, you go back to 2011. I mean, you were, like, pumped to see notifications because it meant someone, like, you know, wrote on your wall or commented on a video or something like that. Um, and I think that's shifted pretty dramatically. Shannon, when you look out over the last 10 years, what, what kind of speaks to you? Yeah, yeah. We were talking about social media. And I think social media has really transformed how we even interact and consume healthcare. Um, so I look at it from a patient advocacy standpoint. I mean, never before have we seen so much pressure just on things like drug pricing as the rise of social media has enabled that. Um, I mean, there used to be companies that would routinely rise the price of drugs 30 percent, 40 percent, 50 percent. And there was never any backlash. But because of social media, now you have patients getting on actually um, really kind of starting a, a rage, if you will, and then also pushing politicians to actually make movement. Now we've even got some traction in Congress to bring that down. And so when you look at social media, it's so much more than just a a way to interact with friends. It's even more so than like just a way to aggregate and consume news. It really is a platform that I think is giving voice to those who were voiceless, which are the patients. I appreciate you highlighting the good in social media. Yes, <laughs> that, there's that a lot is, of good. It's possible. <laughs> Emily, what about you? Sticking with the social media theme, although I feel like calling it social media is maybe narrowing this down too much. It's it's data, and it's how we interact with our own data. And sure, social media giants like Facebook have gotten the brunt of the hate, I guess, over the way that they collect and use our data. But we as consumers willingly give it up. So, Dylan, you mentioned you haven't posted on Facebook in 2019 except for maybe once. But the fact is, is that that doesn't matter. It really doesn't for Facebook. I mean, not only does Facebook have so many different platforms, but your data is being stored and shared by everybody on the internet. And I mean, it's in ways that we don't even think about now that would have alerted us 10 years ago. Uh, when you go onto a website and you click accept cookies, 
right? I mean, that's it right there. You ever have the opportunity to neglect cookies? No, because you know it's the way that we've come to accept how our information is used and the conveniences that come with it. So you can get yourself entirely off the internet, but you miss out on what Shannon mentioned, that transparency. So when you reach out to companies, whether it's healthcare companies, or whether it's a restaurant when you had a bad experience and you post a Google review, all of these things increase transparency, but you're giving up a little piece of your of your data of yourself in exchange for it. Does everyone here in the studio have a Facebook account at this point? I have a fake Facebook account, yes. I will admit it. Yes, I have a fake book. I had Facebook, you know, as a high schooler, but for me, like growing up, I just never used it. So I'm pretty much a Twitter person, but I do have a fake one just so I can post kid pictures for the rest of the family. Gotcha. Nick, do you have one? I do have one. And I, to Shannon's point, too, on, on kind of Facebook and, uh, you know, our, how we interact with it, having a fake account. Um, I, people will talk about a lot of one of the big kind of developments of Facebook. What kind of launched it is that it, you know, was real identity. You put your real self, you interacted with your real friends, you put your relationship status, all those sorts of things out there. And that kind of launched Facebook to growth, whereas other other online platforms had been, you know, you might have a username or those sorts of things. And uh, I feel like over the course of this decade, decade we've kind of come full circle from how, where you really, you know, got the value out of social media by putting your full, you know, your true identity out there, interacting with real people uh, from your day to day life, till we reach the point where uh, these privacy concerns and concerns about our data have reached such where, you know, you mentioned Twitter, the anonymous accounts are all over the place on that platform, actually create a ton of value. Um, so it really is interesting how we've kind of come full circle from this true, real identity uh, kind of out outspring to um, to today, where we're kind of moving away from that. JMO, do you have a Facebook account? I do not. I you know I did for a time, and it just was not something I enjoyed. I just didn't get anything out of it, and I, I just the one thing I think the thing that I hate most about social media in general uh, is just the concept of keeping up with the Joneses. It's this. People posting Thanks, whether it's whether it's true or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You set such a high standard. I don't want to be, really be keeping up with this joke. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, 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 to the point about transparency and honesty. I mean, you truly don't know what is real and, and not real anymore. And and I, I it just seems to be. I watch my children. I watch their friends. I see how social media plays out on these kids today. It. There is good. Don't get me wrong. There is a there's a lot of bad, and and I I for for me personally, there was just not much into. I just didn't really enjoy it, so I didn't want it, didn't need it, shut it down. Um, it's interesting to see our kids. Two girls, one getting returned fifteen, one thirteen. Neither has a Facebook account. Neither wants a Facebook account. Now they use Instagram, right? And they use that sparingly. And my wife is on Instagram, so she can kind of track what they're doing. But but it, it's. You know, seeing that stress of having to live your life, being expected to maintain a social media presence is it's a bit concerning as a parent. I think that that's a major existential thing that Facebook's going to have to confront over the next five to ten years. I mean, um, it's pretty clear that we aren't getting a ton of value out of its namesake platform. They're really lucky that they have Instagram as, yeah. as a kicker. And, you know, they have WhatsApp and they have Messenger as well. But you know that, that that's where they're making most of their money right now is the mm-hmm. Facebook namesake platform. And for us to be saying we're not getting a lot of utility out of it, we're not posting that much. Um, it, it makes you kind of wonder where the money's going to come from. And I mean, I'm I'm wondering whether I'm going to even have an account in five years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people use 
their Facebook credentials to log into other sites, right? And you know, I, I think that's where a lot of the privacy concerns have come up. It's just you log into Spotify or whatever it may be with your social media credentials, and boom, now your data is being shared across platforms, and you don't know who's getting what and, and what you're sharing and what what you're keeping private. Um, so it, it it becomes very confusing, and um, it doesn't seem like anyone has really jumped out there to try to take the ball and say, you know what, we're going to be looking out for you, the user, for a change. Now, I didn't mean to exclusively steer us into social media and tech talk with this <laughs> roundtable. Um, Jason, I think you're the only one who hasn't chimed in yet with uh, the change that you were kind of observing and most interested in. With well, some fortunately, of these Dylan, I am not going to go into the social media <laughs> world here. I, I was actually, I remember the days of paying $50 commissions to buy and sell stocks. Mm. And I mean, I remember those days very well. And, and it always struck me as like, man, you're charging me 50 bucks for a phone call? That's not fair. And lo and behold, now here we are where it is straight up zero commissions. And I mean, our job every day is to try to spread the love and the joy of investing and teach people how to do it and why they should do it. And now we live in this world where you can essentially do it for free. And and I, I think to me, I mean, seeing what I think Robinhood really started that ball rolling and, and we saw all of the other major brokerages uh, follow suit very quickly because I, I think you see that and you realize, well, you can't go back from that. Now we're setting new expectations for a younger generation, for future generations to come. Um, so to see Schwab and TD Ameritrade tie up, not surprising. Before that, TD Ameritrade and Scott Trade got together. Uh, you know, we'll probably see some more consolidation in the space as time goes on. But I, I, I do think. Um, on the whole, that's a net win for people, for for yeah. investors, for people who are interested in investing. Um, I think it was very customer centric, and I'm glad to see it. Yeah, I mean, what more could we ask for? Well, <laughs> since you brought it up, Dylan, they could they could pay us per trade. Well, that's well. the next step. And I'm not talking about that fifty dollars if you go ahead and make thirty trades. Like I'm talking a per trade commission to us. That's where I would like to see How about going. an incentive at the end of the year? If you bought more than you sold, then you get like a hey. bonus Ooh, for being hey. a long-term investor, right? Don't tell Tom Gardner that. Because <laughs> he'll pick that up and run with it. <laughs> Alright, uh, we are also going to talk about a fact or a stat that summed up the decade for us. But before we get over to that part of our roundtable discussion, we got some stock pitches. Uh, our Monday host Jason Moser likes to put out to our listeners, you know, write in if there's a stock that they recently bought and explain why. We're going to read a couple of those throughout this discussion. Jason, what's the first one that's coming up? Okay, good. So, last stock you bought and why? Casey from Ottawa, Canada wrote in. He says, I've been a longtime listener and greatly appreciate the insights into new stocks brought up by your variety of contributors. It's been a profitable source of info and a great way to track my new leads. I enjoy the many different perspectives, regardless of whether they match my own opinions. Keep up the good work. So, guys, just real quick, round hey, of applause. Hey, look at that. Thank you. All right. So, uh, Casey says his last equity purchase was Broadridge Financial Solutions, ticker BR. And for background, he says, I aim for largely dividend growth stocks with good payout sustainability and a history of consistent shareholder returns. Companies with large moats and excellent free cash flow get me very excited. And this one fits the bill in my view. What do you think? What do you think, Dylan? <laughs> you like you, free you cash had to flow? put me on the hot. You like free cash flow? I love me some free yeah. cash flow. I love moats. I, I, love I don't qualities. know anything about this company. I don't know anything about the company, but I love the quality. So, Casey, it sounds like it's uh, it's one that's piqued your interest. For so, you know, thanks for writing in and telling us. And you know what I love about that is that's clear, organized thought. Yeah, because yeah. Casey knows what Casey's looking for when it comes to a stock. It's clear that he or she has a framework for how uh, they're looking at companies, and you need that structured thought because otherwise, success isn't repeatable. Absolutely. So, good on you, Casey. Thanks for writing. 
All right, so I asked all of you guys to prepare a stat or fact that you felt summed up the decade pretty well. If you have multiple stats or facts, that's totally fine, too. Uh, Emily, I'm going to put you on the hot seat first. What did you come to us with? I don't have like a fun stat, but I do have what I think is a fun fact, which is 4G was first launched in the U.S. in June 2010, so just about a decade ago, 4G was launched. Now, think about how much our relationship with our phones have changed just over the past decade. So, went through LTE, now everybody's really excited about 5G, if that ever actually happens here in the U.S. We'll see, maybe over the next well, decade. Based on the wireless commercials, it's coming. <laughs> it's coming, yes. <laughs> Feels like it's been saying that for a while now. But the point is, is that, you know, just a decade ago, we weren't accustomed to putting that information over apps, right? So, like, purchasing things with your phone, um, even wearable devices, it's amazing how our relationship has changed. And for me, the big takeaway from that is just security and cybersecurity. I think it's still an underrepresented part of the market over the past 10 years in terms of importance. So, when I look towards the next 10 years, and I think about how much our relationship with our phone have changed just over the past decade, I can't help but imagine that cybersecurity, it's not going anywhere. It's only becoming more important. Yeah, I think that's an industry where everyone's kind of rooting for the companies that are established there, right? <laughs> because no company wants to be dealing with any cybersecurity breaches or any issues, and uh, anyone that specializes in that stuff is certainly going to be in demand. Jason, what do you got for us? Yeah, I mean, the sexy world of interest rates. I know everybody's <laughs> just thrilled to talk about interest rates. I mean, I will give you a fun fact that I was hired to, to work here at the Fool in 2010, so I'm oh. coming up on my decade. Wow. How about that. That the fun fact I'm still here. They haven't gotten rid of me yet. That, <laughs> they still know you work here, that right? That says something. <laughs> Does he know? Pretty sure my paycheck went through last quarter. Wait, did they move you down to the basement <laughs> and they took your stapler? <laughs> um, in, in all seriousness, though, I mean, it, it, this really does go back to when I started working here. I think we were just coming out of the financial crisis, and I mean, I remember that very well. And thinking, wow, that was not fun. Um, and, and this is a testament to how economists really you think economists are really smart, you know, and and they really they put up a good front. You think they're really smart. And, and apparently they all really got this wrong because over the course of this decade, the projections all were for interest rates to be much, much higher than they are right now. And so a friend of mine, Pete Claypool, sent me this article and I was reading through it. And I just found it very um, interesting the theories that they, that they proposed why maybe economists got this so wrong. Why aren't interest rates much higher than they are now? Why hasn't inflation propelled? Uh, those interest rates higher. And there were three theories that they had thrown out there. One is the debt hangover theory. People are afraid of debt uh, after coming uh, through a recession like that, the Great Recession. So, they're afraid of debt. They're paying it off. They're not borrowing as much. They're not spending as much. Uh, the next theory was secular stagnation, which was essentially slow population growth leading to a lack of spending. And then there was a third theory, uh, the the natural rate of unemployment, and that's essentially the lowest we can go before we start running out of workers, which then starts pushing prices back up. Uh, again, as an as an econ major, it's it's all theoretical, right? And it was just interesting to read these theories uh, after after really kind of getting this decade wrong. And, and so it's probably going to take another decade to figure out exactly why we got this decade so wrong. Uh, but I feel like we've been talking about interest rates have nowhere to go up for the past decade, and they just haven't. Gone up. I think there's a wonderful lesson there for folks that you know when you when you see headlines that are precise, there's 
often a level of false precision that comes with these numbers that are being put out there. Yeah. Whether whether it's uh, an economist or someone at a firm that's putting out a price target for a stock, you know, it, it's easy to sound like you've done quite a bit of work and you really know what you're talking about if you've modeled something out using you know a DCF and you've looked at hundreds of years of data, what have you. Um, the reality is a projection is a projection. That's it. And the numbers have to play out before you know exactly how things are going to work out. That's it. Nick, I mean, Nick, you're shaking your yeah, head. Yeah. Well, another, another thing I think on the interest rate stuff <laughs> that I think about a lot is, you know, even if you have 75 years of data, you know, so you go back, you know, all of modern financial history, right? In the grand scheme of things, in the sample size of like human history and all those sorts of things, what can happen? That's a really small sample size. It sounds really huge uh, when you hear uh, when you hear us uh, describe that. But things that have quote unquote never happened before happen all the time, and uh, that's that's kind of what's happened in the last ten years with interest rates. Yeah, just because it hasn't happened before doesn't mean it won't happen. Yeah. yeah. Shannon, what do you got for us? All right. So my stat: sixty-seven percent, and this is from a study from Pew Research, actually published I think last month. But that's sixty-seven percent of Americans say marijuana should be legalized. Um, which is quite incredible, because if you go back 10 years ago, that number was completely flipped on its head. And that is just astounding to me. Two-thirds of Americans before thought, you know what, this should not be legalized. This is an illicit, a dangerous drug. And it's just been amazing to watch, um, not even just you know Americans in general and their changing thoughts on marijuana, but even more so like politicians, even even uh, professional athletes. I think the Major League Baseball Association came out and said that now they're taking marijuana off of the basically banned substance list. Um, so it's just really incredible to me to see how much has changed in a relatively short amount of time. When you go back and look at the history, I know Emily and I have covered this space. When you look at the history of just the thoughts and the sediment around marijuana, just to see where we've come in the past 10 years has been astounding. Now, what do you think has changed those attitudes over such a short period of time, Shannon? Millennials. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the answer for everything, right? But so, so is this something that millennials haven't killed? They've actually, they've actually grown? <laughs> they've actually grown. No, I, I, think, I think when it comes to marijuana, I think there's just been a growing acceptance. Um, because, I mean, of course, people were still, well, they were still doing it. But I think with marijuana... Once people realized it wasn't nearly as dangerous as some of the other drugs that are out on the market, um, I think just sentiment has started to change. And when you now have medical research behind some of this to say that there's actually some benefit to it, I think that that has helped. You know, and you're seeing this on both sides of the aisles, not just Democrats. Also, Republicans are getting on board with this. And so I, I think it's a number of different things. But I think it's for me and looking at this space, it's not a matter of. If federal legalization will happen, it's more a matter of when at this point. Are you willing to throw out a reckless prediction on that? I'm going to say in the next 10 years. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Tune back in yes. in uh, 2029, and we'll, we'll come back full circle on that one. There you go. <laughs> Nick, what do you have as your fun fact? Uh, cool. I've got a couple. Um, first one, 123 and 15. That's the Alabama football record during the 2010s. <laughs> um, but more seriously, on the industry focus uh, side, um, uh, that's oil production in the U.S. So over over the course of uh, the 2010s, uh, the U.S. rocketed up to become the number one oil producer in the world. In 2009, the U.S. averaged about five and a half uh, million barrels per day of crude oil. This year, I've seen a number, a range of numbers, but let's say around 15 uh, million barrels per day of oil. So that's about a triple over a 10-year course of time. And this is in the you know, oil industry, which is you know, a 100-plus-year-old industry, very capital-intensive. Capital 
that sort of thing. So when you see a massive uh, a tripling in production, uh, it really significantly has changed the global oil market. You saw uh, the oil prices peak in 2014, crater all the way down, you know, from above 100 down into the 20s. Um, since recovered somewhat from there. Um, but at the same time, uh, fracking, which has really powered uh, this this oil production boom in the U.S., has really never produced positive free cash flow in a significant way. Uh, during uh, The IEA estimates that during those first four years of the boom from 2010 to 2014, the sector burned $200 billion in cash. Um, and since 2014, independent oil drillers have only had one year of positive free cash flow. Uh, we just saw a couple weeks ago uh, Chevron announce a, I think, $10 to $11 billion write-down uh, of its shale natural gas assets in the U.S. So uh, I think it's an interesting stat, both from the sense of we've seen massive increases in production over the last decade, but there really hasn't been much profit dropping down to the bottom line. And we're seeing, finally, uh, credit start to contract, contract in that industry, some consolidation take place. Uh, so maybe we're going to see that growth slow down. Um, one other, one other kind of fun fact I have that you know is kind of outside my sector, but I think is important, um, is online dating. The, the trend towards online dating has really shifted in a significant way uh, over the past ten years. If you look at a chart, um, there was a there was a famous chart went around Twitter uh, from Mike and Ro- Michael Rosenfeld at Stanford wrote a paper, uh, but you can see how. Um, there was a big boom in online dating right when the internet first started. Uh, it kind of leveled off in 2010 and then rocketed up again. It's now about 40% of new couples uh, meet their uh, significant other uh, through online dating. And that was really been propelled by smartphones, smartphone adoption really coming into the fore uh, in the 2010s. This always on, always able to communicate, uh, seamless communication with, uh, with, with folks has really changed how people meet. And when you change how people meet one another, that really changes how people interact on a huge way. And I, I think we're going to see those changes continue to trickle down uh, over the next decade. And we'll just see how things play out. As someone that's like firmly in the millennial market, uh, I see that with my friends across the board. Uh, a, a ton of people that are either now engaged or married to someone that they met online, or are currently dating someone that they met online. It seems like it's been totally destigmatized. Yeah, the the analogy I, I thought about when I was getting ready for this show, you know, how it, how it flattened out in that early part uh, of the 2000s before it really ramped up in the 2010s. Is 2004? There was a movie that came out uh, called Napoleon Dynamite. I'm sure many of y'all have seen that. <laughs> a and classic. Onla- yes, it is a classic. Sure. And online dating is kind of a. a it's a, it's a plot point in that movie. You have Kip and LaFonda who are dating online. It's kind of a running joke of the whole show of, oh, I've been online on my computer talking to hot babes all day long. <laughs> right? That was the environment of that in the early 2000s uh, with online dating. And you think about the way people, I mean, that joke would never land today, talking about dating someone uh, online. And that significant changes really just happened you know, since the 2010s, since yeah. the smartphone took over. I mean, online dating used to just be so taboo. I remember back in the AOL days, and I'm dating myself here, um, but I remember back in the AOL days, you go in a chat room and strike up a conversation, but you would never tell anybody that you were talking to somebody online, and now that has <laughs> changed. And going back to your point, Nick, um, what's, the, what's the name? Bumble, I think, is the yep. female one. Now it's where females are empowered to make the first move. So you see dating sites not only changing how we interact, and uh, who we meet, but also, too, I think, empowering women. It's really interesting. All right, so I'm going to bring us home. And and I tried to do my best to not navel-gaze at tech with with my stat, but I I couldn't resist. You know, I just just couldn't resist. Um, So if you go back to 2010, and it will depend a little bit based on when you're looking during the year, any guess as to the most valuable company in the S&P 500? When? Uh, 2010. 2010, the most valuable company. Hmm. 
Exxon. Yeah, I was going to say Exxon. Yeah, it has to be something. <laughs> it is Exxon. I can't tell if that's, if Nick knew it because he's over my shoulder <laughs> no, <laughs> or if it's because he covers the energy sector. Yeah, so ExxonMobil is the most valuable uh, company in the S&P 500 and also within the top 10, General Electric and Chevron. Wow. And you fast forward to the top 10 most valuable companies now. You have Microsoft, Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook, boom, that's five tech companies right there. You don't get outside the tech space until six with Berkshire Hathaway, uh, and then JP Morgan, Johnson Johnson, and Visa bringing up the rest. And so um, it's been a decade of tech. I think what we've seen over the last 10 years is a pretty big land grab with some of the more important spaces and tech companies just seeming to seize all of that green field. I mean, whether it's smartphones, software, e-commerce, search, basically any activity that could be possibly monetized, um, one of those companies has a hand in it. And it's it's no surprise that we're starting to get to the point now where there are some antitrust concerns mm -hmm. for some of these businesses, particularly as they've been more and more acquisitive over the last couple of years. Yeah, Dylan, piggyback off what you said, I think Morgan Stanley put out this uh, this stat maybe a couple weeks ago that uh, as of a, a couple weeks ago, I think this is still true today, that Apple alone is worth more on a market cap basis than the entire S&P 500 energy sector. So if you think that in 2010, Exxon was the biggest portion of the S&P 500, and now one company, one tech company is worth more than the entire sector, uh, crazy just how much things have changed in the past 10 years. Another fun fact about Apple, I can't resist, uh, <laughs> uh, their market cap is roughly 4x what it was in 2010. Shares, however, are up almost 800% during that period because the company has been so aggressive with their buybacks and returning capital shareholders. Just going to show. Buyback's not always a bad way to use capital. It depends, it depends of course, on the timing. If but you have no other opportunities to reinvest <laughs> at a higher rate, yes. If you're, if you're sitting on $100 billion and you're trying to invent ways to spend that cash, buybacks are far from the worst way to do it. Um, but I think that is going to do it for this part of our roundtable discussion. We're going to close out this one with another stock pitch, courtesy of one of our listeners and Jason Moser. Yeah, we got this one from Twitter. This is an interesting username. At Melons Mangoes says, The last stocks I bought were adding to my positions of the Trade Desk and Jumia. I bought them in my Vanguard Roth IRA, which brings me to the meat of this tweet. And I think this was just a little bit ago, so maybe this hadn't changed at the time. Do you see Vanguard eliminating its $7 transaction fees in light of the competitive landscape it's facing? Pretty sure Vanguard has already eliminated those, right? So uh, these this this tweet was from a few weeks ago, I think maybe, but uh, I think Vanguard's eliminated those fees. Hasn't I mean everybody's you, eliminated you were the fee guy. I, I thought I you would know. That pretty sure everybody's true. pretty yes. sure everybody's eliminated eliminated those fees now. So uh, the trade desk in Jumia, yeah, the, the trade desk. I, I actually own shares of that one myself. Really neat uh, playing the advertising market, particularly in the connected television and the uh, ad-supported TV. And Jumia, I guess, gets the reputation as kind of the Amazon of Africa. Still some work to do there, but uh, interesting nonetheless. Yeah, and two stocks that have been talked about on the Friday Tech Show. Oh, um, Jumia is a very interesting one. Reminds me a lot of Mercado Libre, yeah. um, which some of our listeners may be familiar with. So, we are going to pick up with another discussion tomorrow. It'll be the same discussion. We're just going to drop it tomorrow. But that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, maybe shoot us a stock that you recently bought, email us over at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you want more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out videos from the podcast over on YouTube. 
As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today. For everyone on the Industry Focus team, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.